0: Tonight, tonight's talk will be on developing wisdom with kindness. So the intent of the Buddhist path is to see ever more clearly the nature of reality, the nature of human life, the ability to have perspective as we go through life, so that we don't end up adding confusion or suffering to our own lives or to the lives of others. So we can have some perspective as we go through life and through the different stages of life. It's the ripening of this wisdom that allows us to feel increasingly free in more and more circumstances because we have perspective and through that perspective, we don't get tense. We don't end up struggling against the unfolding nature of reality, the unfolding, the unfolding uh, path of our lives. We have perspective. And through that, we don't add stress and tension, no matter what arises. And all sorts of things will arise. We try our best to cultivate well-being for ourselves and others. And yet life is not something uh, that we can control. Challenges will arise. And even uh, things that we can predict will happen still end up being challenging, like the aging process and the loss of loved ones. Um, There are challenges inherent to life, but with perspective, we don't have to uh, experience them necessarily as stressful. There's a way to align ourselves with life as it's actually unfolding. When we see clearly how things are actually operating. Then we can relax into the current of what's happening and not generate uh, undue stress, not, un- not generate um, uh, aggravation within ourselves. We can actually meet the experiences as they're occurring, even if they surprise us, or again, even if they're predictable. We don't have to add stress to some of the inherent challenges of life. I just wanna make sure the people in the back can hear me. Sounds okay? Okay. So the uh, the word for this type of wisdom that's freeing is an old Indian word. In, um, the old language was Pali. And the word is Panya. And Panya is seen as the combination of two factors of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is um, what we practice, these eight different ways that we practice and develop ourselves so that we don't add stress and suffering to life. And the wisdom factor, panya, is seen as a combination of two of those folds. Wise view, on the one hand, wise understanding, you could translate it as. So having understanding, understanding is like, if you're born, you'll go through an aging process, we understand that. The aging process eventually ends to a dying process. We, we hold that uh, capacity to be born, to age, to die with, with wise understanding. That you age and die is not um, indicating something's wrong with you or with, uh, uh, with the birthing process. It's a natural part of being born. You age and eventually die. You can hold that with wisdom. You don't have to hold that with stress. You can hold it as, that's the nature of things. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so that's the wise view. The second fold is sometimes, is often translated as wise intention. The way I want to, uh, the way I've been approaching it myself lately, the way I've been holding it, is actually with uh, this word wise approach. So the wise view is the map. How do you use it? How do you navigate your, how do you go about um, using wise view? And that comes through this uh, second factor, wise approach, wise intention. As other translations, wise application. Either way, as we start um, guiding ourselves, there's the right understanding, but then how do we know we're guiding ourselves well? And Sally talked about this some earlier. So she mentioned, wise intention, wise approach, as um, renunciation, non-hatred and non-cruelty, if you'll remember her talk from a few days ago. And those, <clears throat> those guiding factors of, non, of renunciation, non-hatred and non-cruelty are important because often we'll feel like we're having clarity And one way of checking your clarity is to see if, as your mind is operating, as your heart is operating, if it's in the mode of accumulation, wanting to kind of hold on to things, chances are it feels like clarity. All that would be good for me if I can hold on to these things, then I'll be safer. And so it's like, hmm, that feels like clarity, but then it runs into this guiding of renunciation. So maybe I need to investigate, am I really uh, experiencing clarity? Because my mind seems to be wanting to attach, wanting to um, fix itself, fixate itself. And the same with non-hatred and non-cruelty. There are many times my mind feels like it's very clear, and it's completely flooded with hatred. But the clarity and the empowerment and the deliciousness of it, if I didn't know that that was a delusion, and sometimes I don't, I'll act upon it and I'll kind of define myself by it and I'll even like fan the flames of it, like yeah, I'm really seeing things clearly because there is um, this power inside me my mind can feel very clear, but it can be um, submerged in a hating state. and Even cruelty, even a sense where I start justifying my own harsh treatment of other beings, It can feel like clarity, and so you pass it by, is this the wise approach? If you're acting on cruel intentions, if you're acting on hateful intentions, if you're trying to accumulate things for safety, you're gonna set yourself up for uh, frustration and suffering and probably others. And so these two together, the wise view and the wise approach, are what ripen into panya, ripen into wisdom. As that ripens we have more perspective and then as we go about our lives we find that we don't generate extra stress and extra suffering. I have a story on that. Early on in my retreat um, I guess I could just out myself a little further and say I grew up on the east coast in Providence, Rhode Island um, and there's a definite Flavor of growing up on the East Coast versus the West Coast. I've loved living on the West Coast, but there there are certain trends that are dominant on the West Coast, trends that are dominant in the Northeast. And my parents were professors, and so as I grew up there was a great love of intellectual clarity. And along with intellectual clarity, there's something about the East Coast and academia that means that uh, like cynical clarity was like the height, when you could really see through something and see the, the way it was false. You could cut through it. Um, that was a very empowering. So you, there was this sort of spoken and unspoken cultivation of having the cynical blade that could cut through somebody else's delusion. Then you knew you were really in a, in a free state because you could actually cut down other people's joy, (laughs) other people's (laughs) well-being. Because you could see through it. You could see how they were deluding themselves. But cynicism wasn't seen as a problem. Cynicism wasn't seen as a confusion. It was seen as like a heightened clarity that you had the temper because few people could endure your genius. (laughs) So you were often holding back on on your cynicism, but to yourself, you'd be cultivating it. And like, oh, yeah, I see your game. Oh, yeah, I see your game. I'm very free of all the games in the room because I see through them all. Never seeing that cynicism itself was its own distortion, but it tastes clear and it tastes empowering. So I could cultivate it and be encouraged to cultivate it as I went into academia myself for a while. And being around academics, growing up, and then people who are studying, there's this sort of sense that if you could really get cynical, really see through things, really kind of tear something apart, Somehow it meant that you were freer, and it tasted free. Um, and it wasn't until my first retreat that I began to actually live in my own cynical mind, and began to feel the harshness of it, and began to feel the dissatisfaction of having a cynical heart and mind. But it um, it was deep in me at that point. So I was 21 when I first one of my first retreat, and I had spent 21 years really cultivating um, this type of cynical academic. Um, view or capacity. And one of my first awakenings around it uh, happened on retreat in Massachusetts. And I was sitting there meditating, trying to awaken, and feeling pretty awake. And this person next to me was um, breathing heavy. And so I began to just sort of like take them apart. Like, oh yeah, this guy's not free. No way. (laughs) You (laughs) you couldn't breathe like that and be conscious. There's no way. That person's (laughs) caught and they're annoying me and I have to endure people like this in my life. And so I was in a hostile state, but I was so familiar with it that I just kind of kept feeding it. I was like, "Yep, I'm suffering because of this person. I'm suffering because of this person. And then um, a neighborhood dog came by and was sniffing the flowers outside and they had the windows open because it was a warm summer afternoon. And the dog had a little bell on its collar and I love dogs, I really, really love dogs, but I started to get really frustrated, like, whose dog is that? Why is the dog here? The dog is a neighbor's dog, someone should go get their dog, I should probably get that dog and find his home. And I started brewing this frustration and it felt, every, all my thoughts felt familiar and clear, but they were really hostile. I didn't like the dog, didn't like the dog owners, didn't like the person next to me. And it was the first time that mindfulness arose within hostile clarity, to see that it wasn't clear, that it was really distorted. But if it wasn't for that insight, I would have sort of kept cultivating that sense of, I want to be more empowered, I'm not enjoying this this uh, moment, and it's because this person's breathing loudly and someone else isn't controlling their dog. It's because I actually love dogs that the hostility in my mind began to feel incongruous, like I usually don't hate dogs that much. That's funny. But I'm really pissed off at this dog. It shouldn't be here. I was like, why shouldn't a dog be here? So it was actually an older love that I had of dogs that began to show me like, your mind's not working well because it's okay to hate this human. human, <laughs> 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 human humans are worth hating for sure. They've proven that to me. But dogs aren't worth hating. So that was the first sort of like light bulb that went off. So you can have clarity. It can feel like clarity. But you have to pass it through, is it also hating? Is it in this sort of a hostile mode? So you just can't trust the sense of clarity itself. The clarity has to also have these qualities of non-cruelty, non-hatred, and (laughs) non-accumulation. I often wondered why this fold of the path was there because it seemed like once you saw things clearly, if you had wise understanding, you sort of automatically have non-hatred, non, uh, non-cruelty, and then I began to realize that, there, again, there are many times that I feel like I'm having clarity, but I'm not. I'm actually in a, a hostile state. It just feels clear. I'm living with two people right now, and um, one person has just moved into my house. I, I don't think they listen to Dharma talks, so I can tell the story. <laughs> I don't think they would mind, because I'm not going to out them too much. But there's starting, they're starting to be frictions as this new person comes into the house. And I've lived with a lot of people, so I kind of know like, okay, you just kind of deal with the frustrations. But I'm watching um, them navigate each other, and I'm watching sort of the friction build, and I'm watching the opinions start to kind of like sharpen against each other. And I know not to do this. I've done this long enough, and it's like, that's not the way, so be careful. You know, non-cruelty, non-hatred is important as well as cultivating appreciation. So from the day one, really cultivating a warm connection to them. So that when frictions come up, I can point to them. And because we've had a kind connection, since frictions are are gonna arise, and I know that, then I actually can point at them, and it's easier to actually um, give feedback from a place of um, established kindness. If you haven't gone about establishing that kindness, try to avoid conflict, conflict builds, and then it comes out as hostile, and there's no real rapport uh, to endure that type of feedback. And so I was watching these two kind of like, and then the flash happened, and I was able to kind of talk people down, and, and I had done that myself, so I have compassion for what that's like. But actually having cultivated kindness and knowing, knowing the importance of kindness, and also noticing when my mind starts to take up an unkind, stream of thinking, I know to be careful around that. I know to check it. So it's important to uh, cultivate loving kindness, but it's important also not to let hatred begin to establish itself and convince you that it's clarity, because it will do that. That's why this practice of loving kindness is so important because as we orient towards loving kindness, And you've all must have experienced this. I haven't had necessarily a conversation with all of you, but as you get to know kindness, very familiar thoughts will begin to show you whether they're kind, benevolent, benign, or actually hostile. But because we're familiar with them, we may not be that aware of them. We may be so accustomed to a certain type of harshness in our mind that even though we think we're being mindful, we're not, we're actually caught up in something And by practicing loving-kindness, it begins to expose uh, harsh trends in our mind. And then we become mindful of it and we can begin untangling that. As Sally said, uh, the words here are um, renunciation, non-hatred and non-cruelty as being part of wisdom. The nice thing about having be non-hatred versus kindness, is that there's a whole lot more <laughs> of our heart and time of being in ourselves that may not necessarily be kind, but it's pretty good to establish at least not hatred. There's uh, Ajahn Suchito, who's a really wonderful British monk, was uh, giving a lecture once, and he said um, uh, non-hatred is pretty good if you actually get to non-hatred, you're doing great. Versus actually then getting from non-hatred into actual love, like we've been trying to practice here. Actually welcoming love comes and goes. Love comes and goes. But we can actually create a mind and heart that can be oriented towards non-hatred. And you can establish non-hatred. And then within that, love will come and go due to the conditions. But we can take out hatred and cruelty out of our hearts. As we get more oriented towards loving kindness, and again, you can begin to then taste patterns in your mind, how your mind is organized, um, trends in your mind. You can find familiar trends like I've been talking about where maybe you're accustomed to being uh, harsh to yourself or harsh to other people and you're familiar with it. But after practicing loving kindness, those trends stand out and then it's painful because you get to feel the pain that was there all along. It's just you're familiar with it. And then you can begin letting go of those, um, those thoughts, not uh, reinforcing them and letting them go. And that allows you, your mind, to heal some as you let go of these harsh, uh, cruel patterns, even little ones, letting them go and the mind feels relief and settles some. Then you can see clearly where before you might have only been taken up by an old pattern of hostility. Like I watched my two housemates when they, when the pressure was building between them, I would hear how they would talk about each other and I could tell the frustration was really warping how they perceived the other person and the other person's uh, Quote unquote flaws were getting really, really pronounced in their mind. So the distortions were growing. As we can actually talk ourselves out of that and even remove those patterns from our mind, even if temporarily, we can then see more clearly. You can see things clearly if you don't have that uh, hostile filter, the angry filter, the impatient filter. That allows things to see, uh, you just see things more clearly. And usually upon seeing things more clearly, you have more access to compassion. I know that's where I go. When I get in conflict with somebody, I talk myself out of the, the sense of um, trying to get more, more sense of empowerment by increasing my opinions and hardening my opinions. I talk myself down from that. And as Sylvia has been saying, really everybody's trying their best. And this is what everybody's best looks like. And so it actually can lend you, if you can understand what's going on for somebody, you 'll probably have through understanding and compassion, if you truly knew what was going on for somebody, you could see that they're not necessarily trying to be harsh or not trying to be cruel, but how are they're um, constructed, however whatever, whatever patterns they have they're being drawn into. Um, Maybe being impatient with you, maybe saying things harshly, but with understanding, it you can move more closely to forgiveness, and that again helps you see clearly. And as you see clearly, um, your heart goes to kindness. Your heart goes to forgiveness through through uh, understanding yourself more clearly, understanding others more clearly. There's a a British meditation teacher named John Peacock. He's also a scholar. And it's lovely to hear him give his Dharma talks because he spent so much time uh, actually studying not only the Buddhist texts, but old um, Hindu texts. He has a vast understanding of India at the time of the Buddha. One time he was talking to a bunch of us um, and he put out a challenging idea. And that idea is that uh, Metta is one of the four Brahma-viharas. We've, we've, in the afternoon we've gone through different aspects of heart and the 4 brahmaviharas of Metta, loving-kindness, Karuna, compassion, Mudita, empathetic joy, and Upeka, this uh, equanimity, They're called Brahma-viharas. And uh, John Peacock's idea is that the actual liberation we're all looking for tastes like these Brahma-viharas. And so they're not practices you you do and then graduate out of into liberating wisdom, into liberating Buddhist wisdom. That actually what we wanna cultivate and finally arrive into is a state of loving kindness. That the free state the free liberated state, uh, should taste kind, should taste compassionate. And that hasn't always been um, emphasized in this tradition. And I think as we're learning about Theravadan meditation, Theravadan Buddhism, coming from Burma, Sri Lanka, and Thailand, sometimes <clears throat> there, there there's a little shadow side in our tradition, which is a, can be a little bit of a um, taking that idea that life is suffering, which isn't a really good translation, but sometimes we get a little bit um, disappointed with life, or that life has these hardships and we can overemphasize the hardship side of life. And so when John Peacock was uh, inviting us to consider not to um, become dissatisfied with life, but grow up and see life for what it is, and then grow the capacities of heart, so that the freedom you have is compassion when things get difficult or mudita when things are going well for yourself or another, to have a general sense of kindness and benevolence as you walk through the world and this underlying stability of uh, upekka, of equanimity. When the Buddha used the word Brahma, Vihara, Vihara means home and Brahma is sort of um, uh, through the Hindu mythology, um, Brahma is the the highest uh, god, the highest, um, most uh, supreme being, in a way. So supreme, it's not even um, personified, Brahma. And so to call them Brahma-viharas, the home of Brahma, when the Buddha was talking to India at that time, everybody would have understood that from the Hindu tradition as the highest liberation that's possible would be the home of Brahma. And so it's not, and this is what John was um, was putting forth, it's not that Brahmaviharas are a nice place to hang out, but then you graduate from them because there's higher liberation, there's higher freedom elsewhere. The actual experience of loving kindness, when it's pervasive, is what um, the highest freedom feels like. And having trained in Burma, um, when he put out that idea, I was like, well, that's not what the Burmese told me, so I think that's kind of a radical take. But as I've spent more time um, in these practices and watching them ripen over time, my heart and mind was freer to a degree when I was younger and practicing. It was freer than when I started. But as it's continued to get free, what's ripening is a much more of, not the clarity of the practice, and the clarity is very useful, but the warmth of the practice. And that, inc- that increased sense of warmth and intimacy and benevolence is a much um, more joyous, freest, um, freer um, quality of mind than when I was sort of in my clarity phase when I was training to be a monk. And it mirrors these two teachers that I practice with. For better or worse, when I came into really dedicated practice, a Burmese monk named Saida Upandita had just uh, taught all of our teachers at Spirit Rock and IMS. And he had a very big imprint on them. And that had a big imprint on how they taught practice. And his style uh, is very um, it's very aggressive towards freedom and so you he said you you tame the mind like you're like it's a wild beast and you struggle with your mind you fight with your mind and you tame it and you don't you don't let the mind win if it's in bad shape so he would give these dharma talks meditation practice should feel like you have a knife in one hand and a club in the other <laughs> <clears throat> and I was like, oh dear, my God, so here I am. And I went to his monastery because everybody told really good stories about working with him. And what I didn't realize is that was sort of a, uh, the polite thing to do when you're giving a talk. But I never actually talked to them, should I go to this monastery? I just heard so many t- <laughs> great talks about him. And I was like, yeah, I'll go there. It sounds great. Not to realize that um, how he actually taught was, was very intense. And so he grew a strength in me and I, was, um, I became fearless in a way and that I would have felt more free because there were fewer places I didn't have fear but I was not free because if I ever relaxed my mind would kind of take over again so I was like wow I'm just gonna end up fighting my mind for eternity and maybe I'll get better at it and win something but my happiness was really far away my strength was strong but a sense of Growing warmth or kindness; those were kind of uh, eroding as I worked with him. And more and more, what was happening is more of this: like, um, I am, I am a warrior. I'm a Dharma warrior, and that's sort of how he taught. Is sort of the the tone of his monastery, and uh, a lot of his Dharma talks were like that. So I trained in it, and after a while, I said, I. I can feel the strength of what he's teaching and this may work for other people, but um, I feel so imbalanced uh, under his training and I want to find something else. Actually, I started to learn this before I went to Burma. I had done some practice uh, back at IMS and I was starting to learn about the Brahmaviharas and I learned about their importance for my mind, um, for everybody's heart and mind, but specifically mine and uh, balancing out these trends of cynicism and uh, over-intellectualization. But when I asked where should I go in Burma to train, everybody said, oh, you have to work with Saito Upandita. He's the best, he's the best of the best, and you might as well go work with him. And I was like, I don't know, I've heard about him. He sounds kind of harsh. But they said, no, 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 you have to go. So I went and I studied with him for six months and got strong, but the practice got kind of dry and kind of harsh. And then I was gonna leave Burma, um, but I'd been hearing about another monastery that was starting to capture people's attention and it was a different monastery in Burma uh, called the Paok Monastery. I went to visit them before I left Burma. I was like I'll just go see them and maybe I'll come back. I went to visit their monastery and I was walking around and one of the things I noticed right away is that people were happy and relaxed. They were talking to each other. Everybody at Upanish Monastery was sort of locked with their eyes on the ground walking really slowly and there's a sense of sort of um, heavy, dutiful warrior practice. So I went to this other monastery and people were looking each other in the eye and smiling and people talked to me and I was like, oh, this is really pleasant. These people not, must not be practicing. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I heard all these rumors that people were really devoted to practice here but it doesn't show in them because they're actually making eye contact with me. They seem kind of light. Uh, so they must not really be like really exploring that first noble truth of suffering because uh, they're so relaxed and they're so kind of happy. <laughs> so that's kind of nice to be here, but um, I actually, I probably won't stay here because I'm all about practice. But it took a long time to get there, so I stayed you know, for two weeks just to get to know the place. And I began to talk to them, and they had really phenomenal insight into how the heart and the mind worked. And I began to see they were practicing but their way of practice was not this sort of like uh, this burdensome heavy warrior practice other factors were important like the factor of relaxation i was working with Paul Saidah the actual teacher there his english isn't so um, so developed i mean he can speak simply and but he would always have this bright sunny uh, optimism about him and i went in every day, and I'd work with him, and he was like, how is it going? How is it going out there? What's going on in your practice? And he'd kind of be bright, and I never got that from Upandita. Upandita was sort of like, "Hmm." Mm. and I was like, God, I'm just so disappointing this guy, day in and day out, I don't think I can work any harder. Maybe I could, I just don't think I could, but he's never that happy to see me, it feels like. And Pauksaya was bright. There was something bright and cheerful about him. And so that was was lovely. Um, And so I was talking to him about uh, my meditation practice. At the time I was doing meditation on on breath. He said, I want you to practice like this. So I kind of looked at him and he said, breathing meditation should feel like this. So I was like, okay. I was like, oh my God, I've, <laughs> I've never seen somebody do that. He can't be serious. Could it be relaxing? Could it be uh, inviting like that? Could it be gentle? And so I stayed there and I practiced. And he has his imbalances um, as well. So I don't want to just like encourage you all to go off and work with him because they, you know, Burmese practice is, is different. It's built for Burmese people. Um, and then we've done some really careful translations of that practice into this culture. But I learned about relaxation from him, and I discovered a sense of ease and joy that had kind of been um, pushed out of me in working with Upandita. And began uh, returning to a sense of ease and well-being and relaxation, and not just this sort of hardness of mind. And yet, like I said even uh, earlier in the other talk, I was planting redwoods when I was in Burma, and I was trying to measure my freedom by how big they were. And I'm still, things are still ripening from that time that I was practicing. What's ripened is not necessarily more intellectual understanding. I understand um, a lot of the Buddha's teachings, but what's ripened over time is a much more Um, pervasive sense of kindness and intimacy with life. Not aggressive, much more patient. And so if I had taught about mindfulness years ago, it would have been dominated by words like clarity, seeing clearly. For me, mindfulness now, at least as I describe it to myself, it feels like intimacy. Can I be intimate with the breath? Can I be intimate with my body? Can I be intimate with my heart? And in that way, loving kindness is important for that intimacy so that you don't go in with a harsh agenda to your own heart and mind. That you're not, that this practice is not about some huge self-improvement, that you'll finally become somebody worth loving because you will have straightened yourself out so much. Can you actually, welcome patience and loving kindness into who you are right now. I didn't have that when I was first starting practice and it's what the loving kindness has brought in and it's deepened my mindfulness that it's gotten kinder. I had clarity when I was uh, first starting. I, I, my mind was a clear mind but it wasn't a kind mind that deepening of kindness has helped me see even more clearly because I don't have a harsh tone to it. I studied physics when I was younger, and so my mind, even though I don't study physics now, I still love all the things that I see happening in science, and um, you know, I, I really love the pictures that come through uh, astronomy. One of the things you'll notice if you see pictures of the moon and the surface of the moon is that it's incredibly clear. Because there's not a blue sky, the light comes from one direction in the sun and things that are lit up are bright and the shadows are very dark. So there's a lot of contrast on the surface of the moon. Things are very clear. But it's not a very warm place to be. And one of the great things about being on the earth is that because we have an atmosphere, it glows blue when the sun's out. Because of that, light comes in all these different directions. And so because the earth is warm and hospitable, it's not just clear when the sun's out. You actually get uh, light coming from all these directions. And it also supports life to be on the earth. That's the ripening of Panya. That's the ripening of wisdom. It's not that it should get more and more clear, high, you know, stronger contrast But the ripening of wisdom is that it also gets warmer and more patient and more kind. And that um, brings in other factors, other perspectives. So you can see things from many perspectives. You're not caught in your own opinion. You're not caught in your own view. You can see other people's points of view just like the blue sky is so broad and light ends up coming from all these different directions because the whole sky is lit up. That's what loving kindness does to wisdom, is it takes off the harsh edge and begins to uh, ripen it so that you feel held in wisdom. A wise heart can feel just as warm as it does clear. These two statues behind me here, uh, one is of the Buddha and the other is of um, a female deity called Prajnaparamita. And Prajnaparamita is the personifi- personification of the perfection of wisdom. And it said that Prajnaparamita is the mother of all Buddhas, that all the Buddhas that ever are born, they're born out of wisdom. And our English word wisdom still might have a little bit of that um, knowledgeable uh, intonation. But what makes, the, what makes it wisdom, what makes it prajna, what makes it panya, is that it's also warm. It's also kind, it's also patient. It can see clearly, clearly and warmly. And that's how this practice of loving kindness helps us ripen our insight, our Buddhist insight, it helps us become more free, we're fed by the warmth There are certain Buddhist insights that are helpful and maybe even necessary for us to become finally free. And one of them is that all things change. And so you can know that intellectually, all things change. But to know that experientially, one of the difficulties is, is that's a hard world to live in. It means that nothing is trustworthy. All things change you're in a constantly changing body, constantly changing heart and mind. The people around you are constantly changing. The world around you is constantly changing. The reason that that, for me at least, was hard to step into that, is that it also felt challenging. It felt a little bit um, uh, insecure to be in a world that was full of that much change. And so for a while, it was just, can I courageously relax into a world that, that, that is that insecure? When I began to deepen into loving-kindness practice, there was a type of reassuringness, just that my own heart was warm. And so one of the things that I realized is that even though all things change, wherever I end up, there will be some warmth there because my heart will be warm. And my heart is not not changing, but because I've actually cultivated warmth, whatever changes happen, at least one kind person will be there, and that will be me. And if I'm around good people, and I'm gravitated towards good people, even though all things change, there'll be kindness uh, in other people as well. Bringing in the kindness actually helps me relax into impermanence. And I'm more likely to step um, more deeply into impermanence, not just through the courage and recognition of the truth of it, but because there's a type of well-being in me that there wasn't before, I don't mind as much letting go of what I was drawing my security from and stepping into the truth of impermanence because there's inner contentment, there's inner well-being, there's inner kindness. And so now the stream of my life even though it's impermanent, it's got the kindness in it. And that has helped me relax into that truth. So there again, loving kindness has helped ripen the wisdom. I learned early on that all things change, and I held that to be a truth. But it was hard to align myself with it. And just more and more investigation of impermanence hasn't necessarily had me relax more deeply into this truth of impermanence. But as I began to bathe myself in kindness, feel a more innate well-being inside myself, then I find that I'm not gripping onto other things for security, which has helped me relax into the fluctuating world. And the fluctuating world uh, also has this stream of kindness in it, and that helps me relax into the fluctuating world. The same happens with this other truth that there is no lasting self, that none of us are a permanent self. We're always changing. and As you relax into loving kindness, the practice of loving kindness, especially when you feel like there's some momentum rolling, and you can feel well. You can feel the well-being of your own heart, your own being. And from that, your own stories, that churn in you, relax, because there's well-being here and now. You don't worry so much about the future because there's enough well-being here and now that you don't have to get it from the future. You don't have to solve all the problems of the past because the past has led to this moment. And this moment is very fulfilling and it takes the pressure off the past, takes the pressure off the future. You relax into the present some of your own uh, habitual stories begin to relax. And it's just simply, simply being present, kind for yourself or another being. And from that, the sense of me inside softens, relaxes, becomes more permeable. I don't need the hardened sense of self for security. My own sense of self can become more fluid, more dynamic, because there's enough well being inside to relax this grip on self and identity. It's a classic wisdom insight to see there's no permanent self inside. But it's hard to actually step fully into that and to live with that orientation unless there's enough relief inside, enough well-being inside to then feel okay as a fluid being. So loving-kindness there again opens that up. You step into a more fluid being. And from that you can see the world clearly because you're not seeing it from the place of resisting all the changes inside. And therefore clarity opens up. You feel well even though the world is fluctuating. And that again causes relaxation and then the wisdom opens up and matures into a greater sense of kindness, patience, perspective. So wisdom develops loving-kindness. Loving-kindness develops wisdom. And then because this practice is also used to develop um, samadhi, the type of concentration uh, that can really bring stillness inside at times, you know, moments that we can experience on a retreat like this. Maybe for some people uh, experiencing maybe the first time really beautiful stillness inside. Again, so much of my background story of temple that's constantly kind of here, even though I'm trying to practice loving kindness, I still have all the little busyness of my day kind of percolating around the side. As that becomes quiet, I realize how much of temple can be too active, too engaged in, thought of um, too important. And I feel actually, oh, I can actually relax a lot of this templing inside and feel well. And all the strategies of securing temple's happiness can relax some because temple's actually already happy. He's just sitting here practicing loving kindness for himself and others. And then all the heavy strategies about my future and all the ways of trying to renegotiate my past relax and temple becomes a very uh, simple project. (laughs) (laughs) And he and I both like it when he's a simple project. (laughs) And he and I both suffer when he becomes a complicated project. And sometimes if I get lost in the confusion of the complicated Temple, and I can't, and I get a little bit too wrapped up in templing. Um, I can temporarily confuse myself to think that my happiness will come when I really figure Temple out because he's got so many moving pieces, he's so complicated how to keep him happy, and what he likes to do, doesn't like to do, and how to balance him out, and all that. And I can be transfixed by that. Uh, heavy circus of templing and then to sit here and over time with some momentum on a retreat like this relaxing and finding he's not so complicated you feed him a little bit put him in the sunshine every now and then (laughs) let him sit quietly don't keep agitating him with a heavy schedule and he actually relaxes then he and I can become much uh, deeper friends. He's not such a burden to keep happy. (laughs) He's not so finicky. (laughs) I've had one roommate my entire life, a man named Temple. (laughs) And I've learned to get along with him. I learned how to coexist with him. But if we both practice loving kindness for ourselves and other beings, uh, our relationship is uh, greatly improved So, I hope you have experienced that for yourself. Uh, A softening of self, a softening of burden of self. That's also an insight. It's also a wise understanding of yourself. You may not need the complicated future. and It may not be as precarious as you were worrying. That, with several days of dedicated practice, whoever you are, becomes alleviated, becomes relieved, becomes simpler. At times. It's not like an escalator that just keeps getting better and better and very steady. There are ups and downs, but over time you learn how to be with yourself peacefully, be kind to yourself. And that may not be a stepping stone into some other type of freedom. That may actually be what freedom tastes like. You may already know your own enlightenment. You may have already experienced your own enlightenment many times, and it wasn't as impressive as you imagined it being, (laughs) but it's actually much more soothing. Those moments where you're fine. You're not fine because you're experiencing something pleasant, you're fine because you're fine. You're fine because your heart's open. You're fine because you found peace in that moment with the world. And then it's just a matter of strengthening that capacity so that it's more accessible in more times and more places. But it may not be a radically different hue you that you'll finally become when you're free. You may have already tasted what your final freedom tastes like. Being you, breathing, being kind to yourself and others. Not heavily deluded, not heavily greedy, not embroiled in hatred simply being you and being kind. And maybe that's the height of wisdom. Maybe that's the perfection of wisdom, not complicated, just seeing things clearly. Be here, be relaxed, have an open heart, relate to the world around you. In more places, in more circumstances, probably many of you heard or saw um, Barack Obama's eulogy at the church in Charleston. And I, I loved it, as many people did, um, unless you're politically opposed to him and then nothing he does is good. <laughs> but <clears throat> being prone to like him and give him the benefit of the doubt, I actually really loved what he did and to see him being passionate and having a president saying Amazing Grace it was beautiful, but there's one line that stood out for me. I saw the whole congregation get it, and then he moved on. But he he touched this one moment, which was really beautiful. He was talking about the I forget the man's name, um, the Reverend who was shot, Pinkney. Thank you. He was saying many things about him, but one of the things he said. And maybe, the, and this is kind of a quote, but not exactly. He said, maybe the, one of the, ma- the greatest things that could be said about him was he was a good man. And maybe that's actually a lot, that he was a good man. And maybe that's a lot for us, that we can be good people. Humbly good people. Not some height of some perfection that's beyond who we know ourselves to be maybe the good side of us is already pretty impressive. As I've gotten more oriented around that, I have grown into my own sense of liberation. And when I was younger, I was trying to become something through these practices. And as much as I've done to myself to make myself different, I have not been successful. <laughs> And I'm much more like I've always been, given the amount of effort I've tried to be somebody else. uh, Luckily, I was stronger than that. (laughs) And I wouldn't actually become somebody else. And over time, what I've become in being free is comfortable being myself. Again, you wouldn't imagine that the same person in front of you was one time Paralyzed to walk out of a door into a room full of friends. I was just too raw and insecure at the time. And to talk in front of you all uh, openly like this is a freedom. And it's not that impressive. It's not like I became somebody different. I just have enough kindness to myself that I can connect with you all simply like this. And maybe that's what freedom is like, and maybe it's simpler and much more accessible. Let's take that note and let's just sit for a moment. You don't have to get into a different posture. Just something that will allow you to sit comfortably Allow the content of the words to settle. And see if you can feel your own body sitting simply. Invite yourself into a simple state of being. and invite quiet humility and kindness And you can notice as the agitation calms down at times, this kindness is already waiting there. This kindness is maybe already intrinsic to us and it's about relaxing into it recognizing it, trusting it. When I ring the bell, I invite you to keep exploring this into the evening. Gentleness, quiet, composure, holding a kind response to who you already are. We have time for walking and then a final sit in the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.